0: Well, amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7 as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Nehemiah. Bear Bryant, if you follow football, one of the most legendary football coaches in college football history. You know Bear Bryant? Uh, From Alabama. Of course, he was at Texas A&M. We always like to remind you before he went to uh, Alabama. But anyway, uh, just an incredible coach. He once said, I'm just a plow hand from Arkansas, but I have learned how to hold a team together, how to lift some men up and how to calm others down until finally they've got one heartbeat together, a team. And he went on to say, there are just three things that I'd ever say. He said, first of all, if anything goes bad, I'd say, I did it. If anything went semi-good, then I'd say, we did it. And if anything went really, really good, I'd say to the men, you did it. You did it. Community and building community is crucial for a football team. It's also crucial in the life of God's people. It's crucial in the church. That's why Paul said in one of his prison epistles that We should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it's uh, amazing how the Lord always works out His timing that we would be talking about uh, building uh, a community of uh, of believers on the same Sunday that we have communion. Because what is communion after all? The co-union, the the union of communion. It's reminding us of what we have in common, that we're all part of this together, that we have one Savior and one Spirit and, and so forth. Uh, We looked recently in our study of Nehemiah at some of the one and other passages talking about how important it is for us to be uh, in this uh, together and to recognize who we are in Christ and and to recognize that we're part of a community. And that's why, by the way, that the weekly service is so important. You know, the Bible reminds us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, you know, back in early in the first century. Uh, when the church was just a couple of decades old, people were already beginning uh, to struggle with faithfulness in church. And uh, that's vital. That's part of God's divine design, this assembly. And I know Plum Creek Chapel is, is a unique church. Every local church is unique. You know, the mission never changes. We're here to spread the gospel and make disciples. The local church's vision is unique to each geographical setting and and the churches themselves and Plum Creek is certainly unique uh, but God's been faithfully using this church for over 20 years to proclaim the gospel and build up believers in the faith and I don't know about you but I love our church I love coming together on Sundays and even though uh, with the, uh, the synergistic relationship we have with NBW Ministries and people coming from a variety of places and a huge audience uh, online, we still it still comes down to this, this light on a hill, so to speak, that God planted uh, through our uh, founding pastor, John Ashrag, over 20 years ago right here. Actually, he didn't plant it right here in Sedalia, but this is where God had planned all along for this to be in this building. And uh, that's, that's who we are. So we come together uh, to, to fulfill our purpose and to build one another up, to build a healthy community uh, of believers. Uh, over the last 2,000 years, obviously, the importance and significance of gathering together at, in church on Sundays uh, has ebbed and flowed. Uh, Frankly, today in America, where largely the church has become apostate, most gatherings are just social clubs. They really aren't fulfilling uh, the mission of the church. But early on, at least in America, even before the founding of our country, when the pilgrims came over in the early 17th century, they took church attendance serious. In fact, there was a law on the books in uh, Virginia in 1610 that if you missed church three Sundays in a row, you could get the death penalty. That is no joke. So uh, we are going to be discussing that at our next board meeting. Uh, Hey, whatever we can do to boost attendance, right? I found this interesting. Recent statistics on accidental deaths These are accidental deaths. Uh, Studies show 20% of accidental deaths occur in an automobile. And 17% of accidental deaths occur at home. And then it drops precipitously. 0.6% occur on a train, plane, or boat. 0.4% of accidental deaths occur as a pedestrian is walking on the street. But here's the good news. Only .001% occur during a worship service. So the moral of that story is if you come to church, you, you'll live longer. You know, that's, uh, actually, that's true <laughs> yeah, if you look at the Word of God. So what was Nehemiah building? That's the question on the table this morning. You know, what was he building? The wall was complete. We read about that last week, Nehemiah 6.15. Well, if the wall is complete, why do we have seven more chapters in this book? What was he building? Well, he wasn't building a wall as much as he was building a community, a community of believers. Now, we're kind of looking at the whole chapter, but don't fear. I'm not going to read all 73 verses, uh, frankly, because I don't think I can pronounce half the names in the rest of this chapter. But I do want to read the first five verses, so if you want to follow along, if you uh, have your Bible, if not, uh, we'll come put these verses up on the screen as we get to them. Uh, and by the way, if anybody needs a, an old-fashioned print Bible, uh, most people have Bibles on their phones and mobile devices now, but if you need one, we've got a stack of them in the lobby. Uh, they're free. They're brand new. If you'd like to, one, you're welcome to it. Or if you know someone else that needs one, feel free to pick one up. And pass it on with our, uh, with our blessing. But Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 1 says, Then it was when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station, and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. That's from Ezra. And found written in it. And that's when he then launches into a lengthy list of the different people based on, in some cases, their genealogy. In other cases, their geography uh, that were part of this community. So what I'd like to do this morning is just give us four do's and don'ts of community building. What does it mean to build a community, which is really what Nehemiah was building? We've got seven more chapters, counting today, uh, of life in Jerusalem as they had been regathered into the land after the exile. So four do's and don'ts. We'll start with a couple of don'ts first. Number one, don't confuse a construction project with a building process. Don't confuse a construction project with a building process. You know, throughout church history, and even going back into ancient Near Eastern times, people have been prone to elevate the material icons, images, brick and mortar above the real substance. That's certainly true today. Uh, You know, churches uh, build these, especially, you know, in the last, uh, say, a couple hundred years ago, or you can go back before America into the medieval times, these massive buildings, ornate, beautiful, uh, lots of imagery. But yet, from a spiritual perspective, they're dead. There, there's no vibrancy there. There's no connection to the Lord. There's no, uh, b- no few believers there. And I fear that has really become true in the United States in these great last days of deception. As I, uh, uh, my new book goes through the editing process, I'm dealing right now, uh, late last night, on a, a section that, that just highlights just how apostate the church has really become. Uh, to be sure, people all over America are gathering just as we are in a building. But in those cases, it's more about the building than it is about the Word of God and what it means to be a community uh, of believers. Uh, I remember one when I was in academics. Uh, uh, in a major city, uh, Houston, Texas, there was a church that launched a, a campaign, a billboard campaign, in which they were opening different satellite campuses all throughout the whole metropolitan Harris County area. And their whole campaign on these uh, billboards to encourage people to come to one of these satellite campuses, they were renting out theaters, they had their main campus, which was huge, looked like a college campus. Tens of thousands of people at this church. But their billboard ads simply said this. They showed a nice uh, cushioned theater seat and the caption read, come visit us at such and such a camp, at, you know, satellite campus, wherever it was in that region. Same experience, comfier seats. That was the, that was the carrot. Come here, you'll be comfortable. Don't confuse a construction project with a building process. You know, here at Plum Creek, we are so amazingly blessed with our facilities. I hope you appreciate just how blessed we really are. Having been in many churches as a guest speaker and been in a few churches as pastor, I've never seen anything like it. We are state-of-the-art. It's beautiful. Now, we're a small church, relatively speaking. It's all relative. I've been in a lot smaller churches. But, you know, in in general, people would consider Plum Creek a small to medium-sized church, at least on the campus here. But our facilities are phenomenal. Uh, God has really blessed Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, in recent years through the generosity of God's people we've been able to pay off our mortgage we've been able to reinvest uh, the, the, the funds that the Lord has provided to shore up some things to pave our parking lot to do some remodeling to finish out some sections to install a new sound system like we have uh, today um, and uh, you know God's word reminds us if we're faithful in what he's entrusted to us he will increase our stewardship We want to remem- we want to continue to be faithful. And, you know, Paul, one of our deacons, Paul Roberts, does a phenomenal job of just really taking care and and striving for excellence in in what we do here. Uh, And I love that. But, you know, this principle reminds us that this could all go away tomorrow and we're still the same community of believers. And I want us to remember that. I mean, believe me, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we do have comfortable chairs and climate-controlled facilities and nice restrooms and good technology. All that makes my ministry tasks a lot simpler. Praise God. But let's not forget what it's all about. It's about a building process and building a community of believers. And I might add, if uh, the trajectory of our world continues on its current course and the Lord does not come back soon, we may actually find ourselves in a situation where the building matters less than our unity as a church body. So we see in verses 1 and 4, which we read, that Nehemiah says, When the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, besides repairing the walls, the builders had to repair the gates. The last part of the project was setting the doors uh, in the gates to close it in. If you remember from chapter 6, verse 1, Nehemiah had added the parenthetical statement, at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. The wall was done, but we hadn't hung the doors. Um, and then he goes on to say, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few. This is because the people had not been living in Jerusalem, even now that the walls were finished, because it was vulnerable. People could just walk right through the gates. The enemy could easily get them, get to them to, to, to move back into the the boundaries of the city would have basically been to make yourself a sitting duck. And so Nehemiah wanted to increase the population within Jerusalem now that things were getting uh, better. So in other words the building of the walls, the rebuilding of the temple, the hanging of the doors, all of that was a means to an end. It wasn't just about having a beautiful city. It was to make it easier and safer for the community of God's people to function and do what they were supposed to do. There's something unique and dynamic about a community of God's people. And as I was thinking about human history, as recorded in in the infallible Word of God, biblical history is human history, um, I just started thinking about each step of the way this concept of community. And as I put up these different groups of believers throughout history, I just want you to think about each of them through the lens of community. I mean, we think of them as historical figures, as biblical stories, and we think about some of the major events that happened in their life. But think about what it was like for these people in terms of their community. Let's start with Adam and Eve. I mean, for a while it was Adam and Eve and God. They walked and talked with him in the garden. They had each other. They shared this special intimate relationship with God. Uh, later on, we come to Noah and his family. Think about the community that they experienced. I mean, this was a time that after, uh, what is it, 13, 1,400 years, the people on earth had gotten so wicked that Noah and his family were the only righteous ones left. Now think about that. Think about those conversations around the dinner table with Mr. and Mrs. Noah, or whatever their names were, and their children. I mean, they, they were it. Talk about a community. I mean, they stood out. I mean, they were—they had to be together. They had to, to, to encourage one another and build one another up. They weren't going to find community in the unrighteous people all around them. We fast forward to God's calling of Abraham. And Abraham and his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. I mean, that community was very special because they got to experience the unconditional promise of God that God had given Abraham. So now they're really living under a special covenant of God that's unconditional, a promise of a future Messiah and a future land and a future kingdom and all of that. So as they went through their day, and certainly the book of Genesis gives us no shortage of fascinating stories and accounts of life, For Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But undergirding it all was this sense of community. We belong to God and God is faithful. Then the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They really had a sense of community. I mean imagine taking a 40 year trip with a few million of your closest friends. Come on, jump in the RV, let's go. We're going to spend 40 years together. Uh, and, and their community was particularly unique because they not only at times rejoiced together, you know, the tabernacle and all the, but they also grumbled and complained together, right? So they did it all. Uh, then as they crossed into the promised land, a different generation, but now they're in the promised land and they had a real sense of identity and that identity was localized in a particular region of Canaan, and 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 they they were told to go in there and 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 be unique and point people to God and distinguish themselves from all the pagan communities around them. Uh, those other communities didn't have the same level and intimacy and depth of community that God's people did in the Promised Land. They were working together, and then getting closer in time to where we are in our study of Nehemiah uh, during the exiles now community became vitally important because God was disciplining the children of Israel and they had been carted off you know Samaria uh, fell in 722 BC uh, to the Assyrians and then in Babylon came and ransacked uh, Jerusalem in 586 BC and so for you know more than a hundred years the people of God were once again without a homeland and were, Uh, being oppressed, and who they are as a group became a rallying cry, and it held them together. And of course, throughout all these eras that we're talking about, there were people, God's people that, uh, you know, abandoned Him, that turned their back, that said, forget it. But there's always a remnant, and that remnant was held together by uh, community. And then you fast forward to the present church age. In the early days, the early believers had a very real conscious sense of community. They were rallying around the risen Savior. In great power, God, out of suddenness, started the church on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And it was a powerful beginning. And the believers met on the first day of the week. And they they encouraged one another. And the apostles did some teaching. And it slowly began to spread westward. But so too, Did the persecution, it began to spread throughout the church. So that three decades in, they were already facing intense persecution under Nero. And it only got worse as you go through the first century with Domitian by the end of the first century. And they got to the point where their community meant literally hiding out, having secret codes. Uh, Their church gatherings were not anything like what we have today in in a free country, such as it is. Uh, It's still free. You know, we still have an open-door policy, right? We still, anybody can come through these doors on Sunday and worship the Lord here. We welcome them. We got donuts and coffee. I don't think they had donuts and coffee in the first century. They kept the doors shut. They had to make sure these weren't Roman spies sneaking in. There was a real sense of of community. Uh, And then, of course, we could think of the persecuted Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, and especially today. Uh, Our brothers and sisters who um, because of who they are in Christ and their identity with Christ are being singled out for persecution. So it's all about a building process, not a construction project. And what we are building is community. Paul said the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body being many are one body. And so also is Christ. For by one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. There's a unity in uh, community. You know, we're going to be doing a baptism at the picnic after church today. Um, Really neat testimony uh, that Tina has that I'm going to share with the body at at the picnic. Uh, But that's what baptism does. It's a way of building community. You know, you don't have to be baptized in water to get to heaven. Some people teach that. That's a complete affront to the grace of God and a mishandling of Scripture in a major way. Baptism is an important first step that comes after you're saved. It's, a, it's something that is a way of sharing with others, hey, I've trusted Christ and, and I'm a believer. But it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it reminds us that we're all part of this uh, community. Paul put it this way in Romans For as we have many members in one body but all the members do not have the same function so we being many are one body in Christ. He is the head of this body. In Colossians Paul says he, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He says the same thing in Ephesians. He put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body. That's why we call it the body of Christ. It's 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 a community. So Don't confuse a construction project with a building process. The community of God is far more important than any structure, any location, any infrastructure. Second don't is this. Don't confuse security with invulnerability. Don't confuse security with invulnerability. Nehemiah, knowing that the enemies were still around, ordered that security measures be put in place. Having finished the walls, he appointed guards. Now, we coincidentally talked last week here at Plum Creek about security. And uh, by the way, I was so encouraged by the way everybody uh, responded and participated in our security uh, drill. It's important to do that. It's sad that we live in a day and age where, unfortunately, churches sometimes become targets. And uh, especially if you uh, are not afraid to poke the bear a time or two like I do. Have you noticed that? Every now and then I might say something that might might make somebody mad. uh, That puts a a target on our back. And uh, so I'm thankful for our our team and our security team. And um, we've got some work to do there to shore up some things and help get some more organization in that regard. But uh, Nehemiah didn't just sit back and say, building done, let's go play golf. He understood that his enemies never rest and never sleep. And so we read, I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. Uh, to minimize the threat of potential invaders, Nehemiah ordered that the gates of Jerusalem be open only during the busiest hours of the day. Uh, in other words, people could come and go any time, but the vast majority of the traffic in and out of Jerusalem was going to be you know, when they left the gates open for convenience. But other than that, you'd have to knock, and they'd have to open the gate if you wanted to get in after those hours of security measure. Uh, he, he said, we're going to have guards and let them, uh, you know, let, let them stand guard. Gatekeepers usually were posted at the temple entrance, but in this case, Nehemiah posted them at the city entrance because of the imminent danger. As I mentioned, the people had not been living in Jerusalem. Uh, the small population made it even more vulnerable to attack than it would have been if it had been a city full of people. Later on, we're going to see, when you get to chapter 11, I think it is, he's going to propose a plan to increase the population, which is going to increase the security. Don't confuse security with invulnerability. Warren Wiersbe said it beautifully. If God's people don't protect what they've accomplished for the Lord, the enemy will come in and take it over. And I've seen it time and time again. Um, churches, uh, you know, struggling. I heard a report last week of a church that I'm very well acquainted with that going through a, a conflict. The devil loves to sow discord and to uh, cause problems. So as we think about this community, we've got to continue to remember there are enemies of the cross. The devil does not like what Plum Creek and Not By Works are doing and proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. He doesn't like what we're doing and building believers up in the faith. He certainly doesn't like that we baptize people and that we install the baptistry. You know, uh, most churches don't need that. (laughs) Uh, We need it. And by God's grace, we'll use it as he continues to uh, bring bring the increase. Uh, Peter said, your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But notice verse 9 resist him steadfast in the faith. In other words, it's always about walking in the faith. I've talked a lot about that recently, both here and in, in, in not by works uh, events. Uh, the, the Christian life is to be lived by faith. It all comes down to how much do you trust God? Not about doing stuff. The doing is a natural outgrowth of our faith. If we trust God, we'll obey God. So the more you trust Him, the more you'll obey Him. Um, and so Resist him in the faith, but notice this. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. There's that community aspect again. Uh, Paul said, let us watch and be sober. I love what he said in Romans 13. Do this. What's this? In the context, he's talking about everything he's just been talking about. Not only in the preceding verses, but going all the way back to chapter 12. Remember Romans 12, all the way to the end of the book, 12 to 16, is all about practical admonition for how to live out your life by faith, as he talked about earlier in the book. It's just practical instruction. And he says, do this, obey these practical instructions, knowing this, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation, meaning our ultimate final salvation in heaven, not our eternal salvation, that's already secure, but our glorification is nearer than when we first believed. It's important to follow God's will because the final phase of our salvation is getting closer with each passing day. Did you know you're closer to seeing the Lord face-to-face today than you were yesterday, one way or the other. I mean, that's not that profound, really. It's, it's silly to even have to articulate it in those words. But each day that goes on, we're closer either to the day we go the way of all flesh and return to dust or the day of the rapture. In either case, for all of us sitting in this room, those are all yet future. So each day is moving us closer. We only get one, you know, life to live, as I said last week. And so Paul is reminding us here that we need to do that uh, as good stewards. We want to be ready to meet the Lord to whom we must give an account. Uh, The Bible says this over and over again. For example, Philippians 3.20 reminds us, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior. I love what Tom Constable said. It is possible for us to go through our lives as believers lethargic, and insensible, as though asleep. But such a condition is not wise in view of what lies ahead. The prospect of seeing the Lord ought to be a motivator for us every day to walk by faith and to recognize that we have an enemy that wants to distract us and lead us astray. So don't confuse security with invulnerability. Now let's look at a couple of do's do establish a wise organizational structure. Do establish a wise organizational structure. Remember what we read, Nehemiah said, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, the faithful man there is Hananiah. That wasn't a slight to Nehemiah's brother. His brother was also faithful. He's just pointing out, In this particular case that he wanted us to know, Hananiah is faithful. And faithfulness is important. But Nehemiah took steps to ensure the city would remain secure by appointing two security officers who would be responsible for two halves of the city. His brother on the one hand and then a man named Hananiah. And with all of the security measures in place and the organizational structure in place and the walls now complete and the doors hung, The people could now worship God more effectively. Worship could flourish as they uh, gathered together. They didn't have to, they they weren't having to worry about, you know, putting more bricks in the wall and building the wall and the, the, the exhausting nature of that building project that took 52 days and it was done. Imagine how hard they had to work. They didn't have to look over their shoulder wondering if someone was going to sneak through the open gates. They could now focus. But... Faithfulness is required of stewards. In fact, Paul, when he was defending his apostleship in his first letter to uh, the Corinthians, he said, uh, It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. If you're faithful in what God entrusts to you, he will make you faithful over much. But there's a it's wise to think in terms of organization and and, structure. and that's what Nehemiah was doing. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. Paul said to the early church in the context of, uh, you know, church meetings, and this is the same passage that Fred uh, read, same context, where that church in Corinth, which had all sorts of problems, they were coming together chaotically. They were pushing each other and shoving each other out of the way to see who could be first. They were greedily and, uh, you know, eating the Lord's Supper. They weren't even thinking about what it meant. And in this whole, con plus the gifts of the Spirit were being exercised uh, just in- chaotically. And Paul says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let all things be done decently and in order. So again, I was thinking about uh, examples throughout history, how God has called His people to pay attention to detail and do things according to a plan. You know, we think about the panoramic view of of biblical history, human history, and we, we, we see the big picture, we see stories, we know accounts, but do we really stop to recognize how much God revealed himself in very minute details each step of the way? See, God is a God of detail. I mean, let's go back to Noah. Go back and read the instructions God gave to Noah. God just didn't say, hey, go build an ark. It's going to rain. He spelled it out. He gave him blueprints and very specific details. God is a God of order. Uh, The boundaries of the promised land. When they crossed the Jordan, it was very clear what specific part of that region of the world God was giving to Israel. And as I've pointed out before in our Prophecy Night messages, to this day Israel has never occupied fully the land that was Uh, laid out for them in the promised land. They will when Christ comes back, that's for sure. And then in the the wilderness, the description of the tabernacle, very specific, you know, very specific uh, details about that. God is a God of details. Um, The Ark of the Covenant, same thing. It was built according to a specific design. Organization and detail are important. Same thing with the temple. I mean, there are so many passages that talk exquisitely about Solomon's temple and then ultimately Christ's temple that Ezekiel describes in nine chapters at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And it's nothing but detail. Um, The whole Jewish system, the laws and regulations, these are all very specific details. And unfortunately, in in Israel's case, they, they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They became overly obsessed on the details and missed the fact that these sacrificial systems that everything pointed ultimately to the substance which is Christ as the writer of Hebrews talks about. But they were very detailed. For a period of time, God put in place the law to be a steward over Israel to help draw them to Him and tell them more about Him and remind them that He's there. The Levitical system was not a means of gaining eternal life. You couldn't get saved simply by keeping the law. The Bible tells us in Galatians, by the works of the law no one will be declared righteous, but it was nevertheless a detailed, very specific organization, organized plan that God put in place to help lead and guide the people. And similarly today, if you read the New Testament, God gives us a lot of instruction about the local church, about church government and offices and who's to do what, and how do you do church, and how do you do orderly worship. See, an organizational structure is, is critical. Throughout history, God has called His people Pay attention to detail and do things according to a plan. That's why in these great last days where we see the setting of the stage all around us, you better be focusing on the details of Bible prophecy. (laughs) Because they're there for a reason. And and so many churches neglect that, which is naive because it's it should be self evident to anyone with half a brain that the, the stage is being set you know. Why do you think Israel became a nation in 1948? Because we're getting close. There needs to be a nation for Israel to be regathered into when Christ comes back. Why do you think we see the World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum and the UN all collaborating to put in place a global digital ID so that the Antichrist will be able to roll out the beast system that the false prophet that I'm writing about right now will be able to preside over these are things that are important to know. God didn't put Bible prophecy in there so that everybody could just go well nobody agrees on it so I'm going to ignore it <laughs> people don't agree on a lot of things right doesn't mean they're not important I mean I think I can't remember if I said this last week here or in an interview I did this week but you know people don't agree on abortion you think that's important people don't agree on LGBT you think that's important? People don't agree on homelessness. The fact that people don't agree doesn't mean it's not important. It's especially true with God's plan of the ages as clearly outlined in Scripture. It's absolutely important. So do establish a wise organizational structure. And then lastly, do establish an environment of unity. Unity amidst diversity. We've talked about uh, the community aspect, but it's interesting that this idea of unity in the midst of diversity, shows itself here in Nehemiah. Verse 5, which we read, says, He gathered the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And then he says, I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. That's from Ezra chapter 2. And the list that follows, beginning in verse 6 here, all the way to verse 73, is almost identical to the list from Ezra chapter 2. So it begs the question, why did God lead Nehemiah to include it again here? You know, why didn't He just say, see, you know, Ezra? Well, they wanted, first of all, to encourage the Jews to move back into Jerusalem and recenter their focus on the Holy Land that God had given them. So He wanted to remind them again of this community and who they were, and there are, there are a lot of people just like them. He wanted them to see the big picture. But I think the repetition of this list also was a way of God confirming His faithfulness in preserving His chosen people. God's loyal love, the, the Hebrews called the chesed love, was that He was never going to abandon them, never forsake them, He was bringing them back into the promised land, just as He always said that He would. God wanted them to be reminded that they matter. I love what the old preacher J. Vernon McGee said, like only he could say it, about this list. You know, why did God include this list twice? McGee says, well, God is saying, I know these folks, and I want you to know that I know them. It's a testimony for all of time in the written Word of God. These people matter. These people matter. Another great stalwart of the faith, Warren Wiersbe said, the important thing is not to count the people, but to realize that these people counted. And there is unity in diversity. So Nehemiah organized the population according to this vast diversity in the Jewish community based both on their their lineage, their genealogy, as well as in some cases where they didn't have their genealogical books. They just organized them based on their geography. He wanted them to know they needed each other. Now, I'm not going to read, obviously, this whole section, as you can tell just by glancing at your Bibles, it's, a, it's a, just name after name after name. It's kind of like the begat section of Genesis, right? But I did go through and, and read these and just was trying to think what's the significance of each of these. I've given you the big picture why we believe God included this in uh, the text here. But as we think about this idea of unity and diversity, you can learn a lot about these people by looking at the meaning of their names. You know, in Hebrew, the names usually had some significance with the person. They would even change their name when God would do a major work uh, in their life. So let's just look at a few. I kind of spot-checked some of these. It would have taken hours to look every one up, and I intended. I started out doing that, but I realized, you know, you start looking at lexicons and looking at the data and trying to figure out what these mean, and it, it would take forever. So I just picked a few. First of all, we look at verse 7, and we see the reference to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was a significant member of this community. He was the head of the tribe of Judah. He was the prime builder of the second uh, temple. He's, he's called, uh, you know, one of the, the leaders. Um, and then you see uh, in verse 11 the reference to uh, Pehath Moab. Pehath means governor. He was a military leader, military governor. If you will. These were significant people in the mix. But guess what? There were also some insignificant people. Uh, For example, the word parosh there in verse 8 means a flea. A flea, like what you'd find on a dog. Or actually, let's think of it as on a cat. (laughs) A flea on a cat, right? Flea. That's all we know about this guy. Why did his parents name him Flea? Well, one can only wonder. And then you look at verse 13, and you've got this uh, fellow, Zatu. Sound like a sneeze, right? Zatu. You know, I searched trying to figure out what his name meant. The best I could come up with is Israelite. <laughs> so talk about insignificant. Mean, this guy, he's a Jew. Yeah, thanks for sharing. We've, we figured that much already, right? Uh, Zatu. You read the word Zatu, and you go, Zatu, you too? I mean, who, who is this guy, right? And then you've got the innocent. The word zakai there in verse 14 means innocent, pure. You've got the rebellious. Verse 10, you see the word arach. It means wild ox, rebellious. All kinds of people in this group. Verse 35 talks about harim. Harim means Dedicated. I love this next one, verse uh, forty-seven. The word sia, s-i-a, would be the English, uh, the English transliteration. Guess what it means in Hebrew? The talkative. Now it's starting to sound like a church. You know, we got people. Some are more talkative uh, than others, right? Uh, and then you've got the dignitaries, verse twenty-two, hashum. We read is the one who stood beside Ezra. I can't wait to get to chapter eight. It's, it's one of my favorite chapters in Nehemiah because first thing they do once they get this all organized and built, the doors hung as they have church. They have a big service where they read the word of God, uh, and it's just amazing some of the things that we that we read there. But this Hashum there in verse twenty two was a dignitary. He's the one that stood beside Ezra as he read the law. Then you got servants. Uh, let's see the Nephilim, Uh which is the heading of that section of verse 46, just means temple slaves, the servants. Akub in verse 45 means protector, the strong. And then one more, uh, verse 37, the word Ono. It literally means vigorous in Hebrew. It refers to the energetic, right? The, the, they're just really have a lot of energy, right? You see Oh No coming, you go, Oh No! Here comes Oh No. <laughs> Sorry, that was too easy. But. but a healthy church is made up of a diversity of members. And the church you know, is the same way today. The, the, Paul says the body of Christ, we are all the body, body of Christ and members individually. So we need to establish this environment Of unity, God has really blessed Plum Creek with a wide variety of people. We've talked about this before in our study of Nehemiah, in fact, so I won't belabor the point. But I think that list is in Nehemiah to remind us that even though we're one community, we need each other. We've all got something to bring. So there's the, the review, four do's and don'ts of community building. Don't confuse a construction project with a building process. Don't confuse security with invulnerability. Do establish a wise organizational structure and do establish an environment of unity. And so my takeaway, if I could leave you with one thought, it would be this. Identify yourself with a body, not a building, not a label, not a movement, but identify yourself with a body. That's who we are. First and foremost, we're the body of Christ. We happen to be assembled in this local region in the suburb of Denver, Colorado, to try to make a difference. That's what God put on the hearts of the founders of this church and the Berean Fellowship uh, many years ago. Uh, And we're still here today to do that same thing, but we are part of a body of believers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, short passage, but uh, with a lot of meat as we see Nehemiah assembling uh, the people of God into this city. And a lot more to come. And we know that, Lord, nothing happens by accident in your plan. And you have prepared us today the same way you've prepared the people of Israel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise up uh, men and women and young people alike that are strong in the faith, bold, prepared to uh, fight whatever may come our way that are willing to encourage one another, pray for one another, lift up one another, do the things that the New Testament church is supposed to do as we eagerly await your return. And, Lord, we just pray that today if there's someone who is listening to this or watches the video after the fact at some point and doesn't know you, so they have no community, they're not part of the family of God, I pray that the Spirit of God would get a hold of them, convict them in such a way that they yield to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, and they place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one that can save them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.